0: luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This
2: is Martino Navratilova.
1: I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray.
2: And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the tennis podcast brought to you in association with the Telegraph and with Eurosport on the night that two new women's singles finalists at the US Open came to pass because it is going to be Sloane Stevens against Madison Keys in the final on Saturday after Sloane Stevens defeated Venus Williams in a third set, which was one of the sets of the year. A rather disappointing, straightforward victory for Madison Keys. Not her problem, is it? She was fantastic against Coco Vandeweghe, but Vandeweghe struggled today. Happy to say I'm joined right now by Jill Krebass, former Top 50 player, who's just commentated on that match with me for BBC Radio 5 Live Sports Extra. Uh, we will have Mats Verlander on the show a little bit later to look ahead to the men's semifinals. But, Jill, that was pretty impressive. for the, From those two women, wasn't it? Sloane Stevens and Madison Keyes, of whom so much has been expected for such a long time. And finally, they've delivered.
0: I think also because the two of them have struggled with injuries recently. I mean, both of them just coming back. I mean, Sloane had the foot surgery, and Madison struggling with their left wrist. And to come out and both play this tournament the way they've played and to have performances the way they did today was just absolutely incredible and I think you can see from both of the, both of them there's just a level of appreciation for being back in a, a you know an extra motivation extra confidence from both of them and just they're really enjoying themselves out there and you could see it in their tennis.
2: Stevens in particular I, I feel because I've I've not always been convinced about her drive her how much it matters to her really because the, the game comes incredibly easy to in fact to both of those two players it does come very easy it's a different type of tennis perhaps but Stevens is an, a magnificent athlete she can move around the court as well as anybody she has all the strokes she reached that semi-final in 2013 at the Australian Open but I've never been completely convinced about her appetite for the sport 11 months out with an injury surgery she she has clearly missed the sport I mean it you know, it's it's ended up mentally being quite a quite a thing for her, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the injuries, unfortunately, you don't want them, but sometimes they can be a blessing in disguise, and I think that was the case for Sloane. I think you're right. I think a lot of it, a, a lot of her tennis, a lot came so easily, and that's what happens sometimes for really talented players that things come so easily is that, you know, you're expect, you, you expect it to come fast, you expect to win, and you don't realize the amount of level of hard work that has to go into it. And I think for Sloan, being away from the sport, because I've practiced with her quite a bit, and sometimes I would get frustrated practicing with her because things look so easy, but I felt like it sometimes it can look lazy, But I don't think she was trying to be lazy. I think she was just, that's how things felt to her. And I think it was, um, I think she has a great team behind her now. Her coach, Kamara Murray, has done a really good job. And I think he's given her that extra motivation. You could see him in the box today, just really trying to inspire her in really tough moments during that match. And I think he gave some really good positive energy for her during that match. And I think he's helped her on the court in practices and off the court as well to try and get her into a better mental state. And I think you can see it. She's shining on the court.
2: It was, a, it was a funny old match, wasn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, the first set was comfortable for Sloane Stevens. I, I was quite taken aback by how nervous Venus Williams appeared to be at the start of the match in her pre-match interview. She barely uttered three or four words, and I, I, don't, I don't think she was being rude. I think she was just really nervous. About, and here she is, 20 years after first playing this tournament, reaching the final in 97, on the brink of it again. I mean... Can you relate to that? I mean, you had a long career. Did, did I sometimes wonder this. Do players almost get more nervous when they're older because they know so much more and they know what can go wrong? I don't know. What you tell me.
0: No, it's funny. I did get more nervous when I got older because it was at the end of my career and I knew I didn't have that much time left. And there's this level, another level of pressure where you want to make sure you finish on a high note and you want to make sure you finish well and for me and i know for a lot of other players that i've talked to i won't say names but a lot of other players i've talked to they felt the same way and you would think it would be the opposite because you think okay you have the more confidence you have the most experience out of all the players and you feel like that would give you the, that would make you feel more stable but for some reason it makes you more nervous because you do want to finish well and you want to finish to the best of your ability and it doesn't surprise me that much that venus was nervous especially With who she's playing and with the other semifinal as well, because she's she was a role model for these young women coming up, and she's supposed to win on paper, and she's supposed to be the leader, and it's really tough playing a younger player like that, especially your compatriot from the same country. It's just it's hard to describe, but it it does give all that another level of pressure, another level of nervousness to you, and you could see it in Venus and. You knew she was going to bring her game at some point. You knew she was not going to go down that easily. And she did. She started playing really good tennis, but Sloan just came up with the goods at the end.
2: Well, what was really nice is that after two kind of weird sets where Stevens had won 6-1 first set and then Venus Williams won the second six love, they then produced their best at the same yeah. time. I mean, that third set, that will go down as one of the great sets at this tournament for, for years. And I, I'd say it was one of the sets of this year personally it was well over an hour long 7-5 stevens in the end shows great nerve doesn't it from her that she was able to look down the other end and see this all-time great and a, and a role model f- for so many people in this country and managed to beat her
0: yeah it's it's not easy i mean it's not just the tennis right i mean there's so many factors involved i mean just the ones you mentioned and also Sloan's first time ever potential getting into a final and knowing she's playing someone who's been there so many times and who has won this tournament two times in the in the past and I mean that just adds all these levels of pressure and tension and to be able to overcome that it's just incredible and I agree with you I thought that was one of the best sets that I've seen at this at this tournament I think there have been a lot of great matches but you could see this I mean there were many times in that third set that all the fans were giving standing ovations just because of the quality of the level that was out there
2: yeah well the the second semi was was started in a similar manner in as much as it was incredibly one-sided and Madison Keyes just came out nailing the ball but clean hitting wasn't it, it, it everything was coming out of the center of a racket. Coco Vandewey it was the total opposite I really felt for her out there because she just couldn't find a game at all
0: yeah I did I felt I felt for Coco as well and it a lot had to do with how Keys started that match I mean she she served first and then she really applied the pressure from the beginning on Vandewey's serve and really just got on top of her almost on every single point. And I think because of those first few games, the pressure that Coco felt and the nerves that she had to deal with, she she never could quite turn it around. And I think she felt uncomfortable from the beginning. We saw her try and do a lot of different things. She tried to change it up. But at that point, I think she was so uncomfortable that and she couldn't handle the nerves very well that she just really struggled throughout that match but i mean you got to give a lot of credit to keys i think i mean she only had seven unforced errors i think in the whole match i mean that's just unbelievable and like 20 something winners
2: a- anything to worry about with that leg that she had strapped up, keys because it was about three four one, wasn't it? Second set, immediately went to the umpire said, "I need it strapped up." But actually, maybe that was pretty sensible because it just she said afterwards that it was you know to to give it that little bit of extra support. Yeah. Didn't look like she was hindered in a movement the next couple of games when she came back.
0: No, I mean I think that was very smart of her, um, especially I mean at that stage she was up six one four one, so for her to take a break when she has the entire momentum with her was pretty gutsy but she knew that, that i mean i thought that was really smart of her to do that because she knows what's at stake it's her first final now and she knows she's got a great chance to win and i mean it's just she even said herself it was just something small something to manage just to, a little precaution just to make sure and she's lucky she has tomorrow off so she can try and see the trainers and regroup and i, I mean i think she'll be i hope she'll be okay because i think it's gonna be an incredible final i was
2: gonna say come on let's let's hear it then jill yeah. stevens against keys yeah. what do you think
0: I'm giving the edge to Stevens, slight edge, slight edge, and that's that's even if there was no if there was no inkling with the leg for Madison Keys, I would still give the slight edge to Stevens. What is that? I mean, it's just a gut feeling, really. I think they're both playing amazing, and I have no evidence behind my decision, but it's just a gut feeling, really.
2: Well, it's it's something we we look forward to enormously, Jill. Lovely to have you with us Thank on the so tennis much. podcast. Always lovely to, to commentate with you and and speak with you about the sport.
1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
0: upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Let's go on to speak to somebody else who we love to talk to about the sport of tennis. Uh, Mr Mats Verlander, former world number 1, seven-time Grand Slam singles champion. I got a chance to speak to him down in the player garden whilst Catherine Whitaker was doing all sorts of fancy television stuff on Eurosport and talking to just about everybody moving including John McEnroe and Pat Cash and all these people. I got a little chat with with uh, Mats Verlander. and I I was noting with him as we looked around how quiet it was and that's, that's what it's like at the end of tournaments it seems the wrong way around in a way that that tournaments get quieter the further they go and that there aren't many players left and I asked him how it felt to be a tennis player in the latter stages of a Grand Slam. It's weird,
1: yeah it's really, um, as a, I mean as a player you don't really think about it that much because you've got so many things you have to think about in terms of practice and getting ready but I have to say now that I'm in media it's kind of depressing actually and what it what is depressing to me is always it goes from the middle weekend where everything is happening you got matches on every court and you can see big players obviously practicing all the time but also playing on on some of the show courts and then suddenly one day that's over with so as soon as the quarterfinal stage comes it seems like a completely different tournament and obviously now it just gets uh it just gets more deserted by the day. But uh, as a player, you don't really think about it. And as a player, you wouldn't even move your move in the locker room. Even if you were on the same bench or in the same row of of, uh, of lockers as your opponent, you still wouldn't move.
2: Just because that's what you're comfortable with from the rest of the week?
1: That's where you've been all week. And that's, it doesn't really matter. You're not going to be in there very often together with your opponent anyway, except just before the match. Um, I do remember one year uh, in those days when the locker rooms were not in Arthur Ashe Stadium and I remember playing um, the final. It was either 1987 or 1988 I was playing against Ivan Lendl and we ended up um, in the bathroom at the same time. And how did I know? Well, because I could see his shoes and it was kind of comical because we were both doing the same thing and I could (laughs) see his shoes. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> the inside story here on the tennis podcast that's what you get here um so last night matt we had well to us it was a shock um in as much as roger federer didn't win and he's done an awful lot of winning this year i i found his press comments afterwards fascinating uh, so candid about uh, about how he just didn't really feel right all, all, all tournament long
1: yeah, I'm not sure Obviously it looked like that Against Del Potro And it most probably Once we've seen that match I think it, it looked like that In all the matches that he played So I don't know I have no explanation Except maybe he didn't play enough tennis um, After the finals of Montreal He didn't play Cincinnati And didn't have enough uh, matches maybe Or couldn't practice enough maybe Maybe the back was um, troubling him Way more than, than he would say um, And couldn't, couldn't really find a rhythm So yeah, I, I'm I mean, basically I'm shocked that he lost to Del Potro, I have to say. Uh, once you see the match, you kind of understand why Del Potro uh, puts fear in everybody's in everybody's eyes, because because the serve is much bigger than we realize. Um, we always just think of his forehand as being the biggest weapon in tennis, but his serve is a huge weapon, and obviously Federer has some kind of. Um, uh, hang up when he plays against Del Potro and I don't know if it's the forehand that's that big that scares him or because he has lost to him five times and he actually lost to him three times in a row and he hasn't done that against anyone except possibly Nadal and Djokovic so I think Del Potro is so fun to watch and, uh, and he keeps surprising everybody with these wins
2: and from here him against Nadal, they have had some fantastic matches in the past. I mean, you mentioned the five wins he's had over uh, Federer. He, he's he's even got a closer head-to-head against Nadal. Nadal's won more of them, but he, he, he he's kind of the outlier in a way, isn't he, uh, Del Potro? He he's the one who they th- might take the control away. From these guys, just John McEnroe just walks past and raises his hand, you know, to Mats Velander, fellow former world number no. ones and Grand Slam champions together.
1: Um, you know, I think that Juan Martín del Potro. I think when you see him play the way he plays and wins big matches, and he always seems to play well when when it's a big match when it means something. It's just that he doesn't get to those rounds all the time anymore. When you see him, I would I would go out on the limb and say that he would have shared those Grand Slam um, trophies with Federer, Nadal, Mari and Djokovic pretty evenly if he was allowed to play after he won here uh, in 2009. I think he's got those qualities. Um, I think we saw that then. We've seen it now in the last couple of years the way he's come back. Clearly, there's something not quite right with his left wrist or at least not the backhand side. So, because he used to hit
2: winners with that shot, didn't he?
1: His backhand was better than his forehand early on. His forehand was wild early on, and then it came, it came um, alive, and he, and he started to understand what he needed to do. But his backhand used to be so solid, and he hit it hard. So the fact that he's able to survive with with a shot that is, that is you know, under par, it's, not, it's, it's the worst backhand in the top 100, most probably, even though he can mix it up with a slice, uh, and he can still beat these guys. That's unbelievable.
2: He, um, you mentioned he perhaps would have shared the grand slams equally with yeah. those guys. So, so I guess we, you know, if you go back, we're talking eight years now, seven or eight years. How many could he have had by now? Do you think if he had been just fully fit, that he hadn't had this wrist problem?
1: Oh, I think he would have had three or four, most probably at least. Um, because remember when he did beat beat Roger Federer in the finals here, he. He cleaned up Rafa Nadal in the semis. I think he lost maybe six or seven games. So um, he had those results. He had two sets to one against Federer at the French Open in the semifinals. Should have won that, Del Potro. Um, I mean, yeah, he would have easily had three or four. I really think so. I really, and I think, no, he wouldn't have taken the three away from Murray. Don't, don't worry. But uh, he would have most probably taken a few away from the other three, I would have, I would have thought.
2: Yeah, no, I, could, I could see where you're coming from there. So where we are now... How do you write Nadal's form? Well, I
1: thought from the beginning of the tournament, and this is where I think I'm going to be right at the end, because it usually um, usually you have, to, you have to take a guess on who's going to win the tournament. And I did say Nadal, and I'm happy with that now because he didn't look good in the beginning, but he's looking very solid now. Five sets on a slow hard court, which I believe it's playing pretty slow out there on, on Arthur Ashe. I don't see how anyone can physically or emotionally... You know, hang with him, to beat him. I think he can play a close match in the next couple, obviously, because uh, Del Potro has that big serve. If Kevin Anderson wins the other semis, then he's got that big serve, and it's not that easy to break these guys. So, uh, but in the long run, I would have thought that Nadal uh, is a pretty sure bet.
2: Yeah, he, he just has that relentlessness about him again. You mentioned those early rounds, and he did look a little unsure of himself. I, so, I could sort of see the anxiety on his face in the pre-match interview before his first match. Probably understandable. I just wonder, when thinking back to the slams that you won, do, do you recall that sort of feeling that maybe you might come into a slam and, and not necessarily be quite where you want to be, but get there?
1: I think that's the yes. Of course, I recall that yes, it happened it happened all the time. Um, but I think the difference is, and and again, I would say that he didn't look that good in, in, in early on. But at the same time, Nadal, what he does, why he does so well in slams, and Federer too, they're able to go out and they play each opponent the way that they that they feel like they need to play them. So the first set against well, the first three matches really for Nadal, the first set was very close. He lost a couple of them, and it's just him having so much respect for everybody that's in the tournament, and he goes out, I believe, because I used to do the same thing, he goes out and he feels his way around. How good is my opponent? How well am I playing? What do I need to do to stay level with my opponent? And then he stays level, and then he fights, and he, and he, and he seems nervous, and he's not playing well, but he's not missing, uh, and he's too passive, and then suddenly he gets rewarded for for that respect of his opponent and, and of the tournament itself. It gets rewarded with a break of serve, Suddenly, he is a step ahead of his opponent. He now can relax a little bit. Gone. He's gone. He's out the door, and you have no chance of getting on the same train because he's just out of there, and you can't catch him. So I think that's it's it's a it's just a quality of a, of a of a great champion is to not disregard his opponent.
2: Is that something you remember when you had that year in ninety in nineteen eighty eight, and and you won three slams in a year? Did it? Did it feel differently in the locker room to you? Did you feel that other players were looking at you differently to say how they might have been looking at you a year later or 2 years later?
1: Not really. They were looking at me the year after I was number 1 more, I think. What's happened to him? He was, last year he played so well, could have won all four slams and now what's happened? Now he lost to somebody who's ranked just outside the top 100, so that's when you feel that's when you feel the looks.
2: What did happen?
1: I have no idea. No idea. Just um just completely fell off the number one ranking and uh, lost my confidence and lost that motivation to actually beat the guy across the net because that's the only thing that matters in tennis. Obviously, you can't beat, you don't have to beat the whole locker room. But once I got to number one in the world, then it felt like, why are you even trying against me? I'm number one in the world. What, what do you think you're doing here? I mean, why are you making this so hard for me? i I know I'm going to beat you. You know I'm better than you. And then it didn't turn out that way. So
2: you got a bit overconfident.
1: <laughs> well, it's hard to
2: reset your goals
1: you know and i think that you 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 overlook the goal which is to beat the guy across the net once you start winning a slam and then another one and then another one and then however many and then suddenly you get to number one in the world number one in the world the 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 goal which is to beat the guy across the net there's so many other goals that you have achieved along the way that you forget that the only way to achieve those goals is to beat the guy across the net so that's the only thing but and it's not that easy to ju- to just reset your goals. And for Novak Djokovic and for Andy Murray, it's going to be the same problem. It sounds easy to just say, well, I'm just going to win another major. That's my goal. I'm going to win the one I haven't won. Well, it has to be a goal that that you can feel is important to you. You can't just
2: logically make up a goal. No. Catherine Whitaker has just joined us after talking to... Who have you just been talking to, Catherine?
3: I did, it was a conveyor belt of, uh, of legends. I uh, had John McEnroe, then Mats Volander, who I then shuffled in your direction, uh, then Pat Cash and then Alex Goretcher. All interviews conducted with my skirt tucked into my pants because we're in a wind tunnel uh, and I was at risk of having a, a, a fairly major Marilyn Monroe-style Monroe wardrobe malfunction.
2: I see, more information than I was expecting and probably <laughs> yourself. But there we are, Catherine Whittaker giving us the prop up lowdown on what's going on uh, here. The other men's semi-final, uh, I would love to know if there's somebody out there who picked Pablo Carrena Buster and Kevin Anderson to be in it. I suspect there are not too many. Um, but it's, it's intriguing, isn't it? I mean, you know, this, is a, this could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for these two guys.
1: I think for Kevin Anderson, I I would think that if he gets... I mean, he's already uh, gets a lot of confidence from this. If he gets to a final, he's going to get a lot more confident. Uh, Seeing him work, I think he's going to work even harder, if it is possible, because he's one of the hardest workers. So I think there's a chance that he'll do it again. I think for Pablo Carreño Busta, because he's young, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he, he has the potential to get there because at some point, Novak and Andy and Roger and Rafa are not going to be playing on the Pro Tour anymore, and then somebody like Kareño Busta is most probably going to be in the top 10. Um, and uh, we don't know what's going to happen when those guys are gone because the, the likes of Nick Curious and Sasha Sverev and these guys, they're, they're a little bit inconsistent still in Grand Slam play. So, um, I think it could do, yeah, it's going to do so much for their confidence. But, I think you would have not found the person who would have guessed that these two would make the semifinals, no. so you're right.
2: So who's going to win it, that one, do you think? Well,
1: I'm assuming Kevin Anderson is going to win it because of the big serve, but Carenio um, Busta is solid. Uh, he, he, I think he can go in with a feeling that he's got nothing to lose and everything to win, even though he's higher ranked than Kevin Anderson um, because of the, the way that Kevin plays. So I think Kevin will handle the situation great, and uh, I would love to see him go through.
2: Catherine, uh, Mats Verlander, legend aside, what of your other conveyables of legends being saying will happen?
3: Uh, Alex Correcha, very confident about Rafael Nadal, but he's a little bit biased, um, what with being Spanish. Um, But, you know, being confident about the world number one winning things is, is, I suppose, not that much of a limb to be out on. Um, I I, I, I don't know what to think about that one. I mean, we, Matts, talked yesterday about the Federer Del Potro um, quarterfinal, and that just didn't go the way anybody w- was expecting. Certainly, didn't go the way I was expecting. I found Federer's comments. You've probably you've probably covered all this while I was swanning off with my dress tucked into my pants. But um, I found Federer's press conference um, after his defeat to Del Potro fascinating, saying that he thought Del Potro had a far bigger chance of beating Nadal. I found that really, really interesting. Um, uh in the other one i i give a a heavy edge to kevin anderson as do as does everybody i think that i've spoken to nobody writing karenia Busta off though i think just anderson's game is is so big and difficult to ignore isn't it and and he's he's beaten andy murray here before he's had bigger wins here he's had more to deal with here than karenia Busta has so um, that seems to be the majority opinion but the majority opinion yesterday was very much for Federer so who on earth knows
2: Catherine and Matt are now going to go and speak on Eurosport and be all posh on the television I'm going to be on the radio uh, ahead of the, uh, the women's semi-finals which I'll talk to you about afterwards just, just, just finally Matt what, how, how do you find post career life now it, is it easy to take did you enjoy doing media work and all yeah. that sort of thing
1: I love it. I love tennis. So I, I am very lucky because I got three different careers going on at the same time, inside professional tennis or inside tennis, I should say. So what are those? Well, so I go to all the Grand Slams, um, which then obviously they're about two and a half week each each one. So uh, there is your two and a half months about and I'd work for Eurosport and and commentate which is most probably the most fun I have at the Grand Slam which is actually sitting down watching the match live and commentating uh, because it's the closest you feel like you're playing a match in terms of the intensity that you that you watching the match with
2: Catherine enjoys watching you watching a match
1: (laughs) and plus you never lose so you always try and put yourself in in both players' shoes and you never lose you always make the finals I've made the finals now for about 12 (laughs) years in a row and all the majors and then I travel around with a company called Vlander on Wheels and uh, me and another uh, tennis pro we drive around North America in a a motorhome and we do group lessons at a club for four, or five hours a day.
2: Imagine if you're at that club and Mats <laughs> well under pitches up you coaches in, you in a camper
1: van. <laughs> yeah, in a camper van, and we park it uh, some, uh, often at campgrounds and often at uh, in the parking lot of the club, and then we sleep in it and we do clinics, and then we throw all our stuff in and we drive to the next place and we do that about three months a year, and then I still have a career as a professional tennis player on the ATP Champions Tour. I played a few play a few events and a few exhibitions, so that takes about about another month and a half. So I'm tr- I travel about six to seven months with tennis and I got three different jobs inside it. And um, yeah, could never have dreamed in my, my wildest dreams I would have never been doing this after I stopped playing professional tennis.
3: <laughs> and yesterday, the British Eurosport producer, Tom, excellent Tom, actually had a go at Mats for being too accommodating. He said it <laughs> made everyone else he has to deal with look bad. <laughs>
1: I didn't think I didn't realize that, David, that you could be too accommodating.
2: No, you just carry on, Matt. it's <laughs> absolutely fine.
1: <laughs> no, I'm going to change my I'm change my ways. So I'm going to be do- much harder to get.
2: He told Matt
3: to play hard to get a bit more. <laughs> and then you didn't reply to his text earlier today. He was, yeah. he was deeply hurt. Uh,
1: actually, I actually did reply to the text, <laughs> and uh, it did, just didn't go through. But
3: <laughs>
2: he's a nice bloke. What can we say? We love Matt Solander here on the tennis podcast. Lovely to have you with us as always. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs>